This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue or two from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any couple of books from my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents each for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 81st episode of The Quarterbin. Actually, let me go on a brief diversion here. Because every time since about episode 70 maybe, whenever I say that episode number, I just shake my head that we've managed to get out this many episodes. And it's you guys, the lovely listeners, that have kept me on track for this long. Really do appreciate that. And I think there's something about every time I record another one of these, it means that episode 100 is that much closer. And that's still a good eight months away, probably. But I've been thinking about it, planning for it. I've even started recording it. It's going to be epic. I don't mean epic in terms of quality. I mean in terms of length. So, you know, just plan to clear out a decent number of hours next summer to listen to that one, okay? Thanks. Um, where was I? Oh, right! For this 81st episode of The Quarter Bin, we're looking at Vision and Scarlet Witch, issues 1 and 2, a Marvel Comics limited series, cover dated November and December 1982. We have two books to cover here, so we will forego the feedback and dive right into the comics. Vision and Scarlet Witch number one at a cover price of 60 cents, meaning I acquired this book at a, I mean, not great, but I mean, I don't want to complain. I mean, it's a, it's a fine enough 58% markdown. The cover by Rick Leonardi shows our title characters facing down a blue-gray dude with ram's horns and a scythe. We are told that this is the Night of the Living Druid. Wanda's body angle is a bit odd as it looks like her head is sort of screwed onto her shoulder, about 45 degrees off center. She's looking straight over her right shoulder, but both she and her husband are squaring off against the Living Druid and they are ready to fight. So that aspect of the cover works. The story, Trick or Treat, was written by the great Bill Mantlo, with art by Rick Leonardi, Ian Aiken, and Brian Garvey. We open shortly after Avengers 211, in which, along with Beast and Wonder Man, Vision and Scarlet Witch retired from their careers as Avengers. The couple has moved into a nice house, in the suburban town of Leonia, New Jersey, just 15 minutes from the George Washington Bridge. It's known as a haven for New York City executives, doctors, and professional people. And now, it's known as the home of the strangest wedded couple in the world, an android and a mutant. It is Halloween evening, and a kid in a spidey costume points at them, confused. Mommy, I thought only kids wore costumes on Halloween. But that man's face is red. Uh, Remember, listeners, this is a good 30 years before cosplay became, you know, a mainstream hobby. 
finishing their walk around the neighborhood, the couple return to their new home to find an old friend waiting for them. It's Jarvis! And no, I'm not going to do a British accent. Hello, Master Vision, Mr. Swanda. I knew you'd be moving into your new home today, so I thought I might lend you a hand unpacking. They welcome Jarvis to their new home, realizing how much they miss their old friends already. They met in the Avengers. They fell in love there. They married there. Jarvis fixes them a light repast before passing on a housewarming gift from Captain America to Wanda, a druidic tome that he recovered from Greymore Castle in England. That visit took place in Cap 256. Wanda flashes back to her time with the Avengers, following her time with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, along with her brother Quicksilver. How Agatha Harkness helped tutor her in developing her powers. In her reverie, she fails to notice the spell book open itself to a particular page. It turns out that the tome contains the essence of Samhain, the spirit of Halloween. I know, that is not the correct way to pronounce that name, but I've heard so many conflicting versions of what the right way to pronounce it is. So for this story, it's Samhain. I apologize to anyone for whom that's an issue. Outside, a trio of young trick-or-treaters are talking about how cool it is that real-life superheroes live in their neighborhood. I wish we could get another look at them, one says. Why not? Let's ring their doorbell. After all, it is Halloween. Sam Haim causes the three curious children to become possessed by their Halloween costumes, making them an actual goblin, ghost, and jack-o'-lantern. The three possessed kids attack Jarvis and the Vision. The ghost possesses powers somewhat similar to Vision's, so they fight to a standstill. Wanda is still upstairs, but hears her synthesoid husband scream. Sam Haim himself emerges from the book to confront her. And he's wearing the ram's head and wielding the scythe from the cover. Let my scythe slice through the veils of time and space. Let reality rupture, that you may know me as mankind has known me down through the eons. Caught in a mystic flux field, the Scarlet Witch feels herself falling backwards through time. Sam Haim shows Wanda his past glories in prehistory, ancient Egypt, Stonehenge, the Middle Ages, I was there. I am madness, witch. I am fear and the irrational. I am Sam Haim, eternal embodiment of all Hollow's Eve. Back downstairs, both Vision and Jarvis struggle to take down the three possessed kids. Jarvis tries his best despite only having a silver serving tray at his side. I'm no Captain America, he thinks, but perhaps a small distraction could be of some service. He flings the tray into the goblin, driving him forward into the Vision's intangible hand. Vision is now free to float upstairs to join his wife in battle against Sam Haim and the ghost. Like I said, the Vision and this ghost character are equally matched with similar powers and all, and they take each other out of the main action by flying out of the room locked in battle. This gives Scarlet Witch the realization that she must take on Sam Haim on her own. She does not hesitate, throwing a hex at him, but he shakes it off. She thinks about her powers, the mutant hex ability to disrupt probability fields, combined with her actual magical abilities. Which would avail me more here? 
Perhaps my only hope is to combine the two and see what happens. She asserts mystic mastery over the leather binding and paper pages of the Druid Tome, even as her mutant hex power sweeps it into the flames of the fireplace. The fire burns bright for a moment, only to go instantaneously cold. Samhain has been destroyed, returning the three kids to normal with no memories of their being possessed. On the final page, this issue's denouement, the doorbell rings again, but this time it's not trick-or-treaters. It's Wanda's supposed father, Robert Frank. The end. So as my internet buddy and podcasting classmate, Trennis Magnus, would say, what did I think of this? Well, for starters, as I described back in episode 43... In the coverage of the 2007 issue, New Avengers 26, I've been in love with Wanda for about as long as I've been reading comic books. So when I found these ones in the quarter bin, there was no doubt that I was going to buy them. Now, I've never read a lot of Avengers stories. I don't remember ever collecting a large run in particular. And obviously, the Avengers have had about a billion members over the last 50 years. But to me, Wanda and the Vision are always on my version of the team. And Wanda's just adorable. I even like her magical hex-powered headgear. I mean, that is the only way that thing stays on, right? I don't remember having this story back in the day when it came out. Generally, I was more of a DC guy back in 82, and I don't think I owned it. But if I didn't, then someone I know did. Maybe Kenny, maybe John. John was more of the Marvel guy of the three of us, so it was probably him. All of that is to say that I remember reading this. I am a big fan of the concept of the mini-series or limited-series, maxi-series, call it whatever you want. I easily tire of the soap opera nature of comic books, to be honest, of always being in the second act. But minis give you the chance of a beginning, middle, and end, even if it's just for a particular story that the mini is focusing on. There can be a sense of completion when you're done, which a lot of comic stories lack. In terms of this mini in particular, this does kind of seem like an odd choice for the start of a four-part series. This is, in essence, a 21-page standalone story with a one-page cliffhanger at the end. There's nothing about this first issue of a four-part mini that says, this is the first part of a four-part mini. But you have to remember that miniseries were a pretty new thing way back in 82. World of Krypton was 79, Krypton Chronicles 81, Wolverine was earlier in 82, as was the Contest of Champions. So it's not like the rules were set in stone for what a miniseries should entail. But still, it just seemed like it was a one-off story with a surprise ending that could have just as easily been in the regular run of a story and not the start of a mini. But of course, from a practical publishing perspective, I suppose, maybe the only way to tell the story of a married pair of retired superheroes was to call it a limited series. There is definitely more of a stigma of a series being canceled after a short run than there is for a series being planned as four or six or eight or twelve issues, whatever. All of this rambling of mine is not to say that this is not a good comic book story. 
Because I think it is. It's Bill Mantlo, so of course there's a certain level of quality at work right from the start. The writing is strong, and the prose is just the right level of dramatic. I hope you found that in the sections that I quoted. I give Mantlo huge credit for making this a team book and giving both lead characters their own problems to solve, their own fights to have. Wanda is as much a hero here as her husband is, maybe even a bit more. Never, never, never is she portrayed as the damsel in distress, needing her big, strong hero man husband to save her. Now, he does go to her side after dispatching, with Jarvis's help, a couple of the monsters. But that is as a teammate and, and fellow hero, not as a knight in shining armor to rescue the, the, the poor woman. And Mantlo makes that clear by dispatching Vision to outside the house to fight the ghost, basically as soon as he shows up to defend Wanda. So the final showdown is Wanda versus Sam Haim, and she defeats him by bringing to bear all of her powers, the mutant magic, the hex magic, and her brains are all at work. She had to figure out how to get this done, and she did. A couple of specific things to point out about issue one, Mantlo lays in a lot of history of our two leads, told through lots of flashbacks and footnotes, which be honest, came in handy reading it almost 35 years later, in terms of where those characters were at the time of publication, and refreshing this absent-minded professor's memory about where the current history and continuity was for these characters, lo those many years ago. And in that little scene at the start of the issue, Wanda and the Vision are strolling through the streets of their quaint new hometown. And I've got to say that Vision's casual clothing is just awesome. He's wearing blue pants, maybe jeans, and an orange jacket. But these are over his vision outfit, so he has a huge yellow cowl behind him. It's awesome. I love this look. The sense I get is that the vision actually thinks that he's blending in with his human-style jacket and human-style pants, oblivious to the fact that his red face, green mask, and huge yellow cowl still sort of make him stand out just a wee bit, even in New Jersey. He also messes with the trick-or-treat kids in that scene long before they come ringing the doorbell. He says he doesn't have a treat, then shows them a trick by passing his hand through their trick-or-treat bags. And you might think that that is just a fish-out-of-water aspect of him not understanding human traditions. Except that Wanda whispers to him complimenting him for his remarkably subtle sense of humor. And that scene ends with this exchange. Vision. I believe someone once said that even an android can laugh, Wanda. Wanda. Hrumpf. Who said that? When? Vision. I did, my wife. Just now. Okay, I'm sorry. That's funny. And in this opening scene, Wanda is also wearing some nice outerwear, and all of that did a good job to humanize our two misfit characters, as well as place the story in the correct season in which it does take place. Some really nice touches like that, and that gives the story some real heart. And also, I'm just saying, every time these two are alone in a room, they are smooching. I'm sorry if nobody told you. This is a kissing book. 
Now, I'm not sure when I read this the first time I knew who the wizard was, but you can tell from everyone's shocked expressions on the last page that the reveal is indeed a shock. And we should deal with the shock of that shocking reveal. So let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, on to issue two. The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty! In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him! <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is Romance Comics Theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book romance. And we're back. Vision and Scarlet Witch number two had a cover price of 60 cents, meaning I acquired this book at a still not great, but I'm getting used to it 58% discount. The cover by Rick Leonardi and Joe Rubenstein shows a guy in what looks like a containment suit, radioactive protection suit of some kind, and he seems to have beaten up the poor old wizard pretty good. Coming from behind, the Vision and Scarlet Witch are poised to attack. The story, Faith of Our Fathers, had the same creative team as number one. It was written by Bill Mantlo, with art by Rick Leonardi, Ian Aiken, and Brian Garvey. We open in media res, with a very dramatic moment. Vision takes up most of the page, and he is crumpled on the ground, and his left arm is molten slag. The being kneeling before you is the Vision, a synthetic man supposedly incapable of emotion, of feeling. Wrong. Today you're looking at an android in agony. We pull back, seeing Wanda and the Wizard also in heaps around Vision. We learn that Robert Frank's radioactive son, Nuclo, is involved in all of this. As for the Vision, all he can do is stare at the melted stump that was his arm and remember how this all began. We then flash back to the morning of the day after issue one ended. While Frank sips his coffee, Wanda contacts her brother Pietro, who along with the Inhumans have relocated to the blue area of the moon. He and Crystal have recently become parents. Robert Frank, formerly the Golden Age speedster hero The Wizard, has gone to them for help in gaining custody of his son, Nuclo. His theory is that the Inhumans are better suited to finding a cure for his mutation. With their off-Earth location, he feels the court will let him take custody of his son and then take the son to the moon. Even though the twins now know that Frank is not their real father, Wanda takes pity on him and agrees to help, feeling it's best to let Frank keep believing the lie that he is, in fact, their father. Wanda doesn't have the heart to tell him the truth. 
Vision and Wanda have a brief discussion about this, with the android now understanding that the assumption of a responsibility for the welfare of another is a typically human reaction. He then tells Wanda he loves her, and of course they get all smoochy. In the present, Vision sees that Robert may be dead, and Wanda, well, he can't tell. Back in the past, Wanda and Vision go along with Frank to the hospital where Nuclo is being cared for. He's in a plexiglass bubble because he has the potential to blow the Earth to oblivion. Dr. Linda tells them, Here's the child you've just won custody over. May the Lord help you. By the way, Nuclo, this child, is 32 years old. The doctor is very adamant about the potential damage of removing Nuclo from the quote-unquote nursery. Her concern is that they're removing him just when Dr. Bischoff is on the verge of finding a cure. Dr. Bischoff is the head of the nursery, but he's also more, revealing himself to be the wizard's old enemy, Izbisa, an enemy who has waited 30 years for his revenge. He had been using his machine and a special containment suit, as seen on the cover, to slowly siphon off Nuclo's energy to empower himself and seizes the moment that Nuclo is to be taken away to attack, finally enacting his revenge. During the battle, the Vision attempts to phase his arm through Isbisa, but it ends up melting his arm, and he is forced to self-amputate it. This is 30 years before the movie 127 Hours, I'll remind you. Oh, spoilers for the film, I guess. In his frustration, the Vision reveals to the Wizard that Wanda isn't really his daughter. When Wanda explains, Frank is touched that they would risk everything for him, even without possessing the ties of blood relations. Why in heaven's name did you agree to help me? As an Avenger, Wanda learned that all humanity is an extended family. One's responsibility transcends mere flesh-and-blood relationships. That is why I have helped you, Robert Frank. Despite his age, the wizard attacks Isbisa with everything he has for the sake of his one true son. Lately, his doctors had warned him never to run again, let alone fight. But the hero does what the hero does, and he is mortally wounded. Nuclo, Vision, and Wanda rally against Isbisa, damage his suit, and cause a final dispersal of energy. The nursery is illuminated in an incredible release of energy as Isbisa expends it all in a desperate attempt to save himself. He fails, and his efforts leave both Isbisa and Nuclo depowered, which cures Nuclo. If only Robert Frank had lived to see it. Wanda comments in the aftermath. She explains to the healed, and naked, Nuclo, that his father learned an important lesson towards the end of his life. In time to pass that lesson, the lesson of love, on to his only begotten son. The end. So what did I think of this one? Again, a great story. I mean, this was a terrific read. It was dramatic, it was thematic, it was, I wish I could think of another word that rhymes with dramatic and thematic, traumatic. But again, like the first issue, it's sort of a standalone. Ah, let me rephrase that. 
It's totally a standalone. There was one caption box that tied it to the first issue, and nothing that ties it, as far as I can tell at this point, to the third or fourth issues. The four-issue mini could end here, after two issues, and not leave a single dangling plot thread. Maybe Vision's melted arm. But like I said before, this is the early days of miniseries or limited series, so it is kind of a weird reading experience. But, like I said, if calling this a limited series is the only way that we could ever have gotten these two issues, to say nothing of the other two, then that weird reading experience is worth it. Big credit goes to Bill Mantlow for doing his Roy Thomas impersonation here. He is digging deep into the history of Marvel Comics for this one, pulling in Isbisa as the villain. And talk about playing the long game. This is one very patient villain. Isbisa previously appeared in All Winners Comics number 19 in a story written by Bill Finger in 1946. So when the villain mentions that he's been waiting 30 years for this opportunity, it was really closer to 35 in real time. Great job finding a villain that ties these characters together. One historical or chronological note on the supposed, but as it turns out, not actual relationship between Wanda Pietro and the wizard. The twins learned that Robert Frank was not their father, in Avengers 186 from 1979. However, the last time any of them interacted with him, at least on the page, was Avengers 164, a full two years before that. So in real time, he has spent a number of years believing falsely that they are his children. Again, this is a nice element for Mantlo to pull in as a way of cleaning up that situation. And he certainly gives the wizard a dramatic ending, a heroic ending. It's all very well done. There's also a connection between this episode and a prior episode of The Quarter Bin. Back in episode 75, not that long ago, Paul Spataro and I discussed an issue of Marvel 2-in-1 from the storyline Project Pegasus. Before this issue, Nuclo was last seen in Marvel 2-in-1 55 as one of the research subjects at the project. Now, he was not specifically in the issue that Paul and I looked at, 57, but he was part of that storyline. So, podcast continuity achieved. There is a specific element I want to talk about in terms of the art, specifically the design elements. This is on page 18. The page is divided into 11 long, short panels. In the panels, we jump back between Vision fighting Isbisa and the dying Robert Frank talking about family with Nuclo, And we slowly push in on each scene as we return to it, as we jump back and forth between these two scenes as we move down the page, taking in each one of these long panels. So character faces and eyes are getting bigger and bigger each time we return to that scene. It's difficult to show quick cuts or the passage of time in comic book art, but this is one of the most effective ways that I've seen it done. So again, hats off to Mantlo and or Leonardi, whoever exactly came up with that idea. Earlier in the issue when they arrived at the hospital, there was a brief moment of humor. Dr. Linda is walking them down the hallway, 
and in her professional manner starts to address them. The best care that radiology and psychology has to offer, Mr. Uh... And then Wanda steps in to clarify. My husband is just called Vision, Doctor. That was a funny moment, and to be honest, it's just about the only funny moment in this issue, and maybe that's why it stood out at all to me, because the rest of the issue is so intense, so emotional. The verdict on Vision and Scarlet Witch number one and number two, once I got over my idea of what a limited series should be, which includes stories being connected plot-wise in some way, once I got over that, I realized that these are two pretty good stories. I'm most familiar with Bill Mantlow's work on Rom and Micronauts, as I suspect many of us are, where he's pretty much creating entire universes and backstories and characters totally out of whole cloth, and he is great at that. But here, he also shows that he tells stories that are well within the established Marvel Universe, picking up threads from recent stories, and in the case of Isbisa, picking up threads from really, really old stories. But within those restrictions of continuity, he tells a pair of really good stories. Both of these issues, definitely quarter bin deals. That wraps up my coverage of the first two issues of Vision and Scarlet Witch, bringing episode 81 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. In episode 82, we'll probably be looking at the last two issues of the series, Vision and Scarlet Witch 3 and 4, from Marvel Comics, of course, cover dated January and February 1983. I say probably because it depends a bit on what else hits the podcast feed during the rest of September. Because in October, I have a couple of special seasonal Halloween times quarter bin episodes planned. So next episode will either be the last two issues of this limited series, or it'll be issue 21 of Phantom Stranger, DC Comics, cover dated September, October 1972. That book will be the first quarter bin episode of October. So either way, somewhere, sometime, we will finish this miniseries. And that's a promise. If you have any questions or comments about these issues, the miniseries, the episode, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Family Podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor!